From Studio A in Las Vegas, hi, I'm Pedro Jose Greer, they call me Joe, and this is Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter, and I'm the founding dean at the Roseman University College of Medicine, where we're starting to start the medical school for the future. And the idea of the show is the interaction of society and health outcomes and how we need to change medical education to really produce a physician for the future that understands. We have various things we do. We're not going to be community engaged. We want to be community dependent. And that becomes something very important. We can't be siloed out. We need to be part of these communities. And it is with great honor and humility today that we have Captain Carlos Hank here. And first off, I'd like to start off by saying thank you for your service, not only to our country, but to the community. He's a 12-year veteran of the Marine Corps and been captain now since 2020, correct? Yes. He is the, uh, he's with the Las Vegas uh, Metropolitan Police Department, commanding all aspects of the Bolden Area Command. That's the 17 square miles approximately in and around the historic west side. He is a true believer in community policing. You do over 100 community events a year, don't you? Yes, we do. And how did, what got you interested in doing that? Well, one, being assigned to Bolden Area Command, um, the historic west side of Las Vegas ha has a lot of needs for outreach. And um, Bolden Area Command is uniquely situated because there's some unique things about Bolden. One, it's named after Larry Bolden. Larry Bolden is the first black deputy chief Oh. on the uh, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And it's the only area command that's named after a person. All the other area commands are named after the geographical locations, Southeast, Southwest, and things like that, Enterprise and what have you, or the township in which they're in. So Bolden has a unique, another unique aspect of Bolden is we, we're the only area command that has a little league, hmm. Bolden Little League. And... Uh, our unique positioning affords us the opportunity to engage with the community at a very, very in integral level. When we get, we get down into the weeds, we know people at a different level. We, we, you see them every single day. You interact with them. We have parents who will call some of the officers that coach their kids in Little League. So when you have that relationship and you're trying to build that relationship, you're trying to restore that trust in the community, you have to get down there at that granular level and you have to show them that you care. And the only way to do that is continual outreach, continually making those inroads. We have now Bolden Lions, which is a soccer program. We, the west side of Las Vegas is changing to a, a, a heavy Hispanic community. And we have a lot of folks that don't feel comfortable with the police department. So we have to constantly find different ways to engage and interact with them. And Bolden Lions is allowing us to do that. They are very, the first year Bolden Lions, they went out of state and they placed in every competition they were in. And that engagement has uh, turned the corner for a lot of the uh, Hispanic families in our community. And they are seeing that the police in a different, whole different light where we have people that it helps us solve crimes because those relationships, they trust us now. When people, you know, they, something happens in their neighborhood, they, a lot of times people close the door. Now they open the door. 
now they make the call. And I'm glad you brought that up about trust because that's one of the things that my profession has not earned in a lot of these communities. And that's where you're seeing a lot of the vaccine hesitancy. It's if I'm going into a Hispanic community, being a Cuban American, I'm gonna speak in Spanish. It makes them feel much more comfortable. And it becomes important that in our faculty and in our student body, we are equally as diverse as the rest of Las Vegas. Because if not, we're gonna have these disparities that occur that you have seen. And trust being the most important, we have these things we call the social determinants of health or of inequality. The, they cause 90% of all disease in this country. 90% of all disease in this country has a non-genetic factor in it. It's caused by something in society. Okay, obesity is diet and lack of exercise, which leads to diabetes. Diabetes leads to the number one cause of blindness and renal failure, and the number one cause for amputations. All of these things could have been prevented. We have a dom 10 domains that we follow with these things, whether it's food insecurity. When you go to visit a doctor, they'll ask you once if you have a job. They never ask you again. Wow. So we follow these things, and we also do a thing called household-centered care. If you're in these communities, chances are you're working two, three jobs without benefits. One day to see the doctor, that's 20% less you're going to make. That's not a very friendly proposition. Plus what we charge you. Right. You know, and plus we're not going to give you the results over the phone because the way the, the system is driven is we get paid only if you come in. So that's now 40% you've lost in a week if that's what's going to happen. So you're going to wait and wait and wait before you come to see the doctor. By the time you get there, now you're really sick. And generally, they, they go to the uh, emergency room because there's no other place to go to. We want to be able to give opportunities to family. And one of the things we want to do is work with you. If somebody has a handgun in the household, we'd love you all to come in and teach them gun safety. We'll pay for the lock. Because 80% of deaths from handguns are suicides or accidents. These are what people fail to see that statistic that comes in with it, obviously meaning we have a big mental health problem in this country that we need to address, which I'm sure you guys see a lot, especially with substance abuse and the different things that lead into that. And we need to address it. We need to be frank about these things. And we need to say, what is the solution? Not sit at the table and argue from one political side to the other, but come up with a solution. And that's where we need to all work together. Now, you're from Lake Charles, Louisiana. The yes, site of a hurricane, just not... <laughs> well, you got the western side this time, but before you got one, a direct hit. Yes, we did. Although you told me the only time you've been in the eye of a hurricane is when you worked in Orlando. Yes, Yes. So Orlando and being in the eye of a hurricane is one of the most eerie feelings I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, you see the wind, you feel the wind, and then you feel a calm. That's right. And it's like, okay, it's over. But it's not. It's not it only not over because that backside of the eye is stronger than the front side of the eye. And it's eye. coming at you real strong. You graduated from Columbia Southern Alabama in criminal justice. Was yes. this always an interest of yours? Yes. Um, I... Just a little history about myself. I, um, I joined the Marine Corps at a young age, um, and at that time, I wanted to be a police officer. Mm. Um, well, my next-door neighbor, Emmett, was a police officer. Um, even though my family, being from Louisiana, did not have a good interaction with police, the relationship I had with Emmett always kind of like prompted me to be, wanted me, I, I just had this burning desire to be a policeman. So two things I wanted to be. I wanted to be a Marine, and I wanted to be a policeman. And I accomplished both of them. So, uh, but Emmett 
was one of those guys that he was just always squared away. He was one of those guys that you just, you looked at, you're like, man, that guy there, he's got, he's got his stuff going on for him. And um, he, was a, he, was a, he was a good guy. And uh, I just, you know, I, I kind of like admired him from, from afar. He wasn't very social, but anytime he talked to you, you listened and you were engaged. And I, I, I just looked up to the man and was like, wow, uh, I, I want to be like that one day. And in community policing, did that influence you? Showing that relationship that you had out of the respect and then going in the community and listening to people because people are going to tell you a lot of stories. You know, um, when you have the opportunity to hear the perspective from the community and then you relate it to your own perspective, it kind of like drives it home, the need for law enforcement to be engaged. And when you've lived it, and you've seen it, and then you have it echoed in your ear, you know you, what you need to do to, to push that community engagement, to continue to establish those relationships, to continue to draw out and, and give of yourself. Because my, my community-oriented policing uh, team, they work. They, uh, I expanded it to seven officers and a sergeant, and now we have seven-day-a-week coverage. Oh, really? So, right, because we need to be able to engage at all times. Community engagement is not, you know, Monday through Friday. So I have some budgetary constraints, and I've pushed those to the point to where we're giving more on the weekends because there's a ton of events that occur on weekends, and our officers need to be there. Our officers need to be engaged. We just had one at uh, Porta del Sol Apartments, 1915, I believe it's uh, Simmons, where they got a chance to come out and dunk the uh, dunk the captain. So I got to sit in a <laughs> in a dunk tank and uh, you know, uh, but I noticed that I had more employees trying to dunk me than I had little <laughs> kids trying to dunk me. So, so. That, was, that was that was that was interesting. <laughs> but to see the smile the smiles on those kids' faces, and now when I drive over there, we've built some relationships. We have some single mothers over there. They're like, talk to my son, and as you know. A lot of young black boys, the stigma of their engagement with the, with the police department is in question right now. Right. So establishing that relationship, making sure that they understand that they have an, they have an advocate on their side and they have someone they can, they can talk to, that's very important for them. Because they don't, you know, if you, we can establish that relationship early on, we'll be able to change their life down the road, how they interact with law enforcement, what they expect from law enforcement, and how and what we expect from them. I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing when you're I, able to I, do that. I think that's incredible. I really think that's incredible. And the fact that you're doing this, because my profession is just beginning to learn how to get out of its, its little silo and into the community and realizing that we're part of the community. Unfortunately, my profession doesn't represent communities. It's something like 70% of all medical students come from families that make a quarter million dollars or more. Wow. So there's your elitism. And an equal number come from 18 different colleges and universities. So what we want to do is get that first generation kid from Vegas, prepare the very best clinician we can, as we had at the prior institute where we, institution where we started a medical school, we had 55% of our students were black or Hispanic. Wow. In America, only 5% are black, and one-third of that are in leadership positions. Hispanics are about 5.5%. 
and equally as low. Actually, there's only four Hispanic deans in the United States of America and three are in Puerto Rico. Wow. And so it becomes vitally important that we understand these things and make a concerted effort to change it, like you're doing going into the community. This, this country has been through a rough time the last few years and what we've seen and what has come out. And where you and I grew up in the South, racism was very, you could palpate it. I mean, in your face. it was in your face, 100%. We had here as a, uh, a guest, Spencer Haywood who is from, as he says, Silver City, Mississippi, ain't no silver, ain't no city. And he talked about when he went to school up in Detroit, he's walking down the hallway. Now, this is probably uh, the late 60s, 66, 67. And a white professor comes out, and he turns and looks down on the ground and says, what, why don't you look at me when you walk past? He said, sir, where I'm from, you're not allowed to do that. And to change those things, to make an effort, to have somebody as accomplished as you, a staff sergeant after 12 years in the Marine Corps. Let me see. Here you were in 2006, a Medal of Honor winner for his actions in response to a triple homicide. You were one of the first responders, and talk about October 1st. October 1st was probably one of the most challenging days for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Um, our sheriff is always prided uh, us with being on that tip of the spear engagement of the community and doing everything we can to prevent any type of terroristic activity here in this community. We want to be the safest community in America and we want to be the safest tourist destination. And on that, on, on, on that day, we weren't. So how do we get better from that? And how do we respond that night? Well, what you had, what happened that night was you had every law enforcement agency around this region, including either Southern, Southern California uh, area, come to the uh, assistance of Las Vegas. And that was built through the relationships we have with different uh, law enforcement partners. But it showed us some weaknesses. And out of that, we had about, we had, a, we had to take a look at inside ourselves and say, hey, how can we get better? And as an agency, we boiled down with the help of uh, 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 some folks in Washington. They came out, looked at our, our practices, said, hey, you can get better in these areas. And it's like 80, 80 or 90 uh, different areas. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that uh, we have about 90% of, those, uh, 90% of those suggestions or recommendations have been accomplished. Wow. And a lot of that has to do with the willingness for an agency to change and a willingness and a drive to get better. And we've seen some of the ails of other agencies and we have had to learn from it, and ails from our own agency. And one thing that I would say saved our bacon on that day was our relationship we have with the fire department. You go to other regions and the fire department and police officers, a lot of, a lot of friction going on there um, for whatever reason. But on days like that and on days like we're, get, we're coming up to right now. September 11th is right around the corner. Mm -hmm. Been 20 years since that event occurred. And you saw the come togetherness of the Port Authority, the firemen, and all of the different agencies that came together in New York. And they kind of like set the standard for working together uh, as they got through that, that particular incident there. You know, 
Now, our incident, we had built on those relationships and built on built some, some processes in place with our sister agencies like Nevada Highway Patrol and you know the different uh, alphabet soup of uh, police agencies that police this uh, this area, and they came. They were very. We were very successful in how some of those uh, processes turned out that night. However, we realized there were areas for us to get better, and we constantly work to get better in those those areas. And so we're going to come to you so you could teach us in my profession how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you're offering? Because we'll take it. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Um, it, the modeling is there, and we do everything we can to model the way for other, other professions and other agencies. We go around the country and we show and we, we, we show what, what hurt us on that day. We show the, where our shortcomings were so that others can learn from us. Now, you're not the first Hank no. <laughs> in the Metropolitan Police Department. Is that true? I am not. I am not. Uh, so uh, I have an older brother, uh, Charles Hank. He retired two years ago as assistant sheriff here in uh, Las Vegas. And uh, so he actually has a son on the department. Oh, really? So, yes. So now you got the third generation. Yes. We, and then we have some other relatives that are on the, uh, on the agency that work in different capacities on the agency also. So we have a, it's kind of like a family affair now. I see. So the, we're going to change the name to the Hank Metropolitan Police Department? I don't know if that's going to go over too well. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll keep it in Las Vegas. We'll pump the brakes on that one. Okay, okay, okay. Sounds good to me. The uh, family is something very important to you. Yes. You have three daughters? Yes, I do. Two grandchildren? Yes. <laughs> that, now the smile comes out, okay? How old are they, the kids, well, the great kids? Well, I have uh, one's four oh. and one's six. So uh, my uh, granddaughter, London, she's uh, uh, going to first grade. And uh, then I have my grandson. He is uh, basically going to preschool right now. And uh, loving school, loves to learn, and uh, very exciting. Very exciting to see them, you know, engage and uh, just grow as little people. And you see how curious they are. And if we could all have the same curious, reckless abandonment as it comes to learning, I think, uh, you know, if we set aside some of, the, some, some of our grievances with life yes. and just get down to the brass tacks of learning, I think we could take we could take it to the next level. We, the, our younger generation can teach us a few things, and they teach me something every single day. So then you don't mind if we try and influence them to become physicians? I don't mind at all. Okay, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That we could, that, that, what we need to do is saturate the medical profession with the spirit and the intellect that you have, <laughs> and then we can make it better. There we go. And we and first of all, you and I met on the uh, at the Jackson Street Festival. Yes. Very impressed with you. And you Thank were just you. like a normal guy. You had a uniform on, but you were just like a normal guy. And we're talking, we're talking about being from the South and how nice it's not to have humidity. <laughs> <laughs> we got the blow dry heat here. That's, that's what, not only that, nobody told me about the, the dry cold. That's yeah. the other. They tell you about yes. the dry heat, but you get out here and you go, there's a dry cold here, folks. It's bone chilling. Yes, it is, because it's even drier when it's cold than when it's hot. <laughs> but uh, we're nice to get away from those hurricanes, and our prayers are into everybody in the southeast that was affected by that. Yes. And in particular, people don't realize it, but with hurricanes, it's not the hurricane itself. It's after the hurricane. You have, there's going to be people out there without power for a month. 
And remember, with a storm like this, you lose shade, you lose your house, and there's not even drinking water. It's, it's, uh, and now, with Louisiana so high up on the COVID list, that's also another deep concern. New York and Jersey and Philly didn't fare too well either, actually. They did worse. Has very significant flooding out yes. there. Uh, which you don't really see from storms that start, that start off in the Gulf and they go Gulf. all the way up there to the Northeast and, you know, they it dumped a ton of water on them very quickly. Extremely quickly. And this, just some of the videos that I had seen of that water rushing in, then the subways in the basement apartments where so many people died. I, I think that some of that had to do with, you know, they, they're not used to receiving that much water and you have folks that would, go to their basements for refuge just from, you know, that's what they normally would do. And now you have all this water rushing in. I think, it, you know, uh, that's something that we kind of like, we were kind of like behind, probably behind the power curve on, hey, you can't be in your basement. You might need to go to your second or third, third story. But uh, that was, I think their default was to go to their basements. But God, you know, be with those folks. I had mentioned this a little earlier, but you received the Medal of Honor for your response to a triple homicide. Yes. What is it like dealing with things like that? Well, um, as a law enforcement officer, you go when called. And um, you, when the bullets are flying, you go the, you go the direction of where the bullets are flying to, and you're, go, you're going there to prevent and uh, to intercede in that particular situation to save life. And on that day, um, it was basically a neighborhood block party, and um, some uh, gang members came there, and they were asked to leave, and they didn't want to leave. And some of the organizers of the event asked them to, to leave, and they resorted to violence. Um, and unfortunately, you know, some people lost their lives, um, and the response by our, our, all of the officers out that day was... Incredible, because you had a, as I turned the corner, you had a sea of humanity running toward me. I mean, it was just people running, and you could hear the rounds going off as I'm turning the corner, and some of the other officers there, and we were responding uh, to, that, uh, to that triple homicide, and we didn't know we had people actually down at the time. We were praying that people were probably just firing in the air, but uh, we, we quickly learned that there were people that were injured, and we made our way to the uh, victims, um, brought in the fire department and uh, medical personnel, brought them in and uh, got some of those folks out of there in time to save their lives because there was more than, there was more than just those, th the triple homicide, the, the three people that lost their lives. There were other folks that were injured that could have lost their lives that day that didn't because of the actions of the, the officers that responded. And uh, we had some very, very outstanding cops that responded that day. Um, I just so happened to be uh, on that team, and uh, I did what any other cop would do that day. And I, I think I, I was recognized, and I appreciate being recognized, but every cop, that's what they want to do. The, the, the notion that a cop leaves their house or leaves their family and want to hurt someone, that's not what we're about. The last thing you want to do is hurt someone. You want to help. You want to find, you want to, be that sheepdog that's going after the wolf. The wolf's, gonna, wolf's trying to attack the sheep. That ain't going to happen on your watch. 
you want to make sure that that doesn't happen. And unfortunately, you know, some we, we, we have some ill actors in law enforcement that have painted the picture for law enforcement that's caused some issues. But um, I think the overall arching feel on the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, the community knows where we stand. Have we had our, have we had our problems? Yes, we have. But we strive every day to get better. And, and not only that, I think with your leadership and what you're doing, especially with the community uh, policing, with what you're doing in a historic part of the city, because I learned that the west side does not mean they were west. They were west of the railroad tracks. More or less, yeah. Yes, because I know in the south, where I grew up in South Florida, there was a west side of the railroad tracks. If you were black, you were not allowed to live to the east because that's where the coast was. So that's where the segregation began in South Florida and all the way up the state of Florida. And uh, that's also where the riots were in 1969, 1970. The Moulin Rouge, which lasted only six months before it got burnt down, and it was actually the very first desegregated uh, casino in town. And a lot of interesting things happened. I mean, I remember reading about it and that on the west side, the National Guard closed off all the entrances and exits, so people were stuck in there. Wow. And to be able to take something that's historic, and what I saw on that Jackson Street with the mural being painted and you guys all being present there was, it, it was almost like a rebirth. You give people pride. You listen to them. You were right there. Yes. Uh, just, you know, and not just you, there were other police officers. Oh, yes. There. Oh, yes. My team was out there and you had different, uh, different other agencies that were there. Uh, you had some community members, uh, leaders, uh, councilmen, commissioners that came out and supported. And it's it's good when you're all on the same team. You're all fighting. You're, you're all fighting for the same want and desire for the success of the community. I think, and that that's what's most important. Uh, you have a, a very calming personality. You'd make a great doctor. <laughs> you really would. And, and you and and you smile. And it it, it makes me relax. You know. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm an old boomer, okay? So, and to be able to see that and just to see you in action when I saw you out there for the brief interaction that we had was something that was incredibly rewarding to me. Something that I didn't see a whole lot in the state I came from. And what I, what I saw here is Las Vegas is a very special community that's trying to do things not only right, but better than anybody else. Yes. And that's what we want to do with our medical school. But we want to bring first-generation kids into medical school, have them graduate with the highest rates and the highest scores of any school in the Southwest. We want them to train in the best centers around the country. We want them at Mayo. We want them at Hopkins. We want them to do, be there so that they can come back here with that training because we know that first-generation college students will become the first ones to return home because this is where they grew up and this is where their family is. And that's the plan that we have. We also have a very unique system of teaching students. We wanna be in the community. We don't wanna be just community engaged. We wanna be community dependent. We want our, our students out there for four years. We want them working with you and your police officers. If somebody has a handgun at home, you can come in and teach gun safety to them. Our pleasure. We, we will be the ones buying the locks. All right. Okay. And then. That'll be all the different things. If you could t give a suggestion, what do we need to change in medical education? I think you're on a pretty good path. 
Contacting our kids at a young age. Letting them know it's possible. Yes. Because for so many of the young kids, I don't think they know that it's possible. They don't see that as a achievable goal. They don't see that as a, that, that's going to be them. That's for other people. That's why it's important that we have faculty, as you have met, that look like the communities we're going to be in. Exactly. And we have students that look that way. That way, it, we had a funny experience at our past institution where the, the parents got to the point where they would look at the medical student and say, listen, our, our kid can be a doctor, can't he? Yes. yes. Would you like to tutor? And the medical student said, yeah. And they came back to us. And we said, yeah, that's wonderful. How about those 12 weeks in surgery? You're just going to dump the, the kid? Go to the School of Education, get education students, and let them tutor him. That's what they're trained to do. Teach a doctor, we cannot do everything. We do medical stuff, period. That's it. Right. And we got to do it better. And we got to do it better and we got to be inclusive. And the other thing we want to do that's different is we, we think the community is so important in teaching our students. We want to give community members that teach our students faculty appointments, not just MDs. Wow. You don't even have to be a college grad. I just want you to, if you're teaching our students things that are important, why can you not also have a title? Wow. We want to be there as equals and many times lessers. We're there to learn. And we're dependent on the community for a very simple reason. They're preparing our future workforce for healthcare, which is going to be highly analytic, highly technical, but we still have these incredible disparities for those that can't get to a doctor, haven't seen a doctor like we saw during COVID. Where telemedicine is so important, but it was developed for rural and the poor that couldn't get to a doctor. Guess who did not get telemedicine during COVID? Rural and the poor, because they didn't have a doctor to talk to. So these are places we want to launch our programs. I, we are particularly interested in the historic West Side. Well, we, we want you there. And, and, and we will be there and we will follow. We're pretty good at that. No, nah, actually, profession's not really that good at following, but <laughs> we'll learn. We'll right. learn and do that. All right. And uh, first and foremost, I think, the, the Hank that started all this and sent us two Hank brothers and now some <laughs> other ones in, in what you're doing for this community. We hope to be half as successful as you have been in making a change and making it a better life for others. Well, you know, you hit the nail on the head with leadership. We have a pretty good leadership team at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, starting with the sheriff, you know, and, and my chief, Jim Seabach, uh, Sheriff Lombardo. Um, we have a, a ton of folks there that are pushing and driving for change and pushing and driving for us to take that next step in law enforcement. Um, and it starts with that engagement of the community. Well, we're going to listen to you. We're going to watch, take notes. Because that old expression, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We, we want to be part of Vegas that what happens in Vegas, the world comes to see how it's done. All right. You know, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Sir, thank you very much. And again, thank you for your service to both our country and our community and for everything you've done. And from Studio A in Las Vegas, this is Cuba Pete saying thank you for listening and let's make this a better world. Thank you. Right. Thank you, sir. Cuba.
I'm the king of the rumba beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. 